Hey guys, we're about to jump into an interview with Angela Erickson. This was a great interview. I really enjoyed this. So I, I talked with her about her Catholic faith journey, how she's always been a Catholic, but sort of drifted away and then finally rediscovered her faith and what it's like being a, a Catholic mother in today's society. She homeschools five kids, so we'll touch on that probably difficult situation, but also very rewarding. And we'll touch on the, the nuanced conversations that she has about today's society when it comes to passing down traditions from motherhood to motherhood or from mothers to daughters and why that's an issue in today's society. We'll touch on the stay-at-home identity crisis that she actually wrote an article about and plenty of other things that we discuss on this episode. It was a really eye-opening discussion for me personally and I really enjoyed this. Angela is a wonderful person. She does her own podcast known as Integrated with Angela Erickson. So go check out that podcast. It's a really well-done podcast. She talks to a lot of uh, different people about uh, related to, to faith and how we can grow in our faith. And she also contributes to the Meaning of Catholic uh, site as well. So there's a lot that she does. So uh, let me uh, now just transition over to the interview. I, I think you all will enjoy it. So here we go. I'm here with Angela Erickson, who uh, I stumbled across her podcast. I really enjoyed it. I stumbled across the podcast that you're talking about uh, with Jordan Burke, but I don't want to get into that. But thank you for being here. Uh, let's get into uh, what, who exactly are you and your faith journey and all of that. Thank you so much for having me on. Of course. All right. What do you want to know first? <laughs> so what exactly, because I've researched you, I know you have five kids, uh, you're a Catholic mother. So let's just start with like your, your faith journey. So how were you always raised Catholic or was it a, a transition process? What, what did that look like? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, I was raised Catholic. I was baptized in the church and I would say I was raised nominally Catholic. We went to mass on Sunday, but it, and apart from maybe saying grace before dinner, it wasn't exactly reinforced in our home. I honestly cannot remember a time that we even prayed a family rosary, to be honest. So um, in high school, though, I always, I always uh, had a desire to learn more. And I had some friends that were Protestant, but very charismatic and loved their faith, even in the middle of nowhere, Minnesota. Um, I, I basically went to high school in a cornfield. Um, <laughs> but but th those were the Christians that I was exposed to. It was very Protestant, uh, but they really loved the Lord and that inspired me. But I never doubted that Catholicism was true. I met my husband um, and I stumbled my way through college <laughs> trying to almost live a double life in a, in a way until that came to a head. It doesn't really work when you're trying to live a double life and you want to grow in holiness and yet you still want to go out and party. It doesn't really work that way. Um, but I got into pro-life work. I became an anti-abortion activist in college. And um, I would say around that time, my faith started to become more important to me. Um, and then after college, my husband and I got married, actually my senior year of college, we got married and he had a conversion. He had been baptized Catholic, but didn't know it. He came into the church, uh, and into the fullness of the church. I should say the Thursday before our wedding, I think he was confirmed and he had his first Holy communion on our wedding day, um, which was oh, awesome. Yeah. Really, really cool. And so over the years, even past that, I mean, I, I wouldn't say we were like the best Catholics ever or anything. We're still stumbling our way through trying to learn what the church actually teaches because he wasn't raised Catholic and I didn't know very much unless I investigated it. So um started to read a lot. And yeah, now let's see, we just celebrated 10 years of marriage. And I would say 
we do not look like the same people we were 10 minutes ago, praise be to God, or 10 years ago, praise be to God. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been a slow journey <laughs> and I've messed up a lot. As we all. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've I've noticed this trend too with a lot of younger Catholics that's come back into the faith or are very now gung ho. Me being, I don't want to say I'm anywhere gung ho as some some people out there, but it, it's really fascinating to see how how they were raised and what you were saying. It felt like I was at, at that was my dinner table. <laughs> Just you would say us. grace, you would go to mass. You didn't really have much. Uh, uh, information on why this was important or and and then you see the protestant circles of how on fire they are for jesus and how much they love to read their bible and i'm not saying catholics don't love to read their bible but at Mm -hmm. least growing up for me it wasn't portrayed uh, from uh, my parents for instance which uh, which i've tried now to uh, I've been trying to adjust because I've noticed that, you know, our kids kind of mimic what we do. Yeah, and do. if we are on fire for our faith in the church, then they will mimic it back. So it's just really funny how I've noticed this trend of people falling away from their faith, but realizing that's really not the faith that they were falling away from or not the true church mm-hmm. that they were falling away from. It was something that was uh, kind of a shell, uh, kind of a, I would say yeah, like a shell, a shell right? That's a good one. Yeah, I mean, it sort of is. Uh, it, it has some of the trappings, but it's kind of empty and hollow inside. And you kind of are peering into it like, why isn't there anything here? And then you realize, oh, actually, there's like 2000 years of stuff that should be packed into this. Things that are absolutely incredible. But maybe the Pearl of Great Price is maybe I got to look at a different shell that has both the trappings and this pearl inside. Um, and so I think I think a lot of us are kind of seeking that right now. Yeah. And then when you come back to it what I've noticed is just like the richness uh, the 2000 year history of just so much <laughs> uh, more intelligent individuals that have dove into the scriptures and, and just understanding where they're coming from and what they're preaching on and how they viewed everything like with the mass and the Eucharist. It's, it's mind boggling for me of how I've come back um, to the faith and it's, really great to see too because now it seems like there's plenty of podcasts out there that allow me to kind of get inculcated with it in a more seamless way and understandable way and your podcast is one of them where you talk to a a wide range of people that's why i kind of wanted to talk to you because because your podcast (laughs) is kind of like a podcast that i want to talk have built sort of as well where you're talking to people all all different types of spectrums but still have the foundation of christ it's it's really highly recommend the the podcast i really enjoy it so thank you yeah i appreciate that wasn't expecting that thank you yeah so uh i guess when it comes to being a catholic mother because you're a mother of five that's already impressive in of itself thank you how do you uh, try to mimic those uh traditions or those traits that you want to instill into your kids, especially in today's society of how it's so secularism is pushed and it's just so hectic and crazy in the outside world. How do you try to push that idea towards your children? Yeah, that's, that's something I, I mean, I mess up all the time. Um, but <laughs> to answer your question, some of the things that I guess that we are trying to do in our home is really have a properly ordered Ecclesia Domestica. So what does that mean? We want 
our domestic church to reflect the truth of the the ark, right? The church. And uh, so for me, what's been really important is um, allowing my husband to lead. And I don't mean in like a weird fundy sense where like he is this dictator and I exist under his thumb and I just do whatever he wants me to do. Um, though I, I'm inclined towards that, you know, because I want to, I love him. Um, but I make space for him to lead. And I think that's really the first step for any good Catholic home is women have to create space for their husbands to lead. And then the men have to fill that space and do it. Um, I think sometimes a lot of men don't know how to do that. And that's something that they have to learn often from mentors or doing some reading. And sometimes it's really simple, like reading scripture to the kids before bed or leading a rosary before bedtime and giving them a blessing. Like my husband gives our children blessings every night before bedtime. And he does the basic priestly blessing because he is the priest of our home, right? And so he does that simple tracing the cross on their foreheads and saying, um, may God bless you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. And my kids love it. You know, those are, it's really simple stuff like that, that I think sets the tone for the home. And do we do it perfectly? No. Do I yell at my kids? Yes. We homeschool and I'm with them literally 24 seven. Um, and I make a lot of mistakes, but I also have a lot of great conversations. Like we do liturgical traditions as well. So the daily liturgy, so to speak. Um, but we also have those traditions that we do through the seasons. And so right now we're working on the Jesse tree. We haven't done it perfectly because it's been a really busy advent with it being so short and I had a sister get married and everything. Um, but we're getting caught up and it's amazing reading this to your kids. I mean, it, it, give, it goes through the story of salvation history through the different archetypes of Christ and everything. Basically, the stump of Jesse, we're going through Christ's genealogy and, and understanding where he came from and where we're going. And my oldest daughter, who's eight, I was just reading to her some of it today. We we're going through some of the the days that we missed. And she said, oh, we're listening. We were talking about Samuel and how God called out to him three times before Eli says, Samuel, if, if you hear the voice again calling for you, say, I'm here, Lord, your servant is listening. And anyway, Avery, my oldest, she goes, you know, that's really interesting. That reminds me of when Christ said to Peter three times, do you love me? And I'm like, it's just amazing. Like these kids are so smart. And if you just equip them and give them the tools, they're, they're trying to find connections and understand things. They're naturally trying to understand typology because they, I mean, if you're, if you're introducing them to even stuff like that, I just think, oh my goodness, my kids are way further ahead of me in terms of some of this stuff than I was in college. And um, that's a gift that we get to impart on our on our children. So I've really loved that. Um, and that's kind of what it looks like in our home at this time. I'm sure there's plenty of things that you're actually learning along the way because that it kind of works in tandem with what a, cause a, we plan on homeschooling our kids as well, is that you actually get to dive into these subjects or these topics with like a new fresh set of eyes and you end up realizing, Oh my goodness, I didn't actually know this. And sometimes like a, a clear example is like your kids can point out certain connections that you would have never even made that connection. Cause they're probably not even afraid to try to make those connections and make right. those suggestions. If you mm -hmm. foster that environment to allow them to explore and learn and, and grow and, what does that, what does homeschooling look like with five kids? If I don't mind you Chaos. asking. 
chaos in a good way, I hope. It, it is good chaos usually. Today today's was not one of those good chaos days, but sometimes it is. Um, sometimes it's really beautiful. I mean, a lot of it, I mean, the kids wake up and they play board games and stuff. Like my older kids learned how to play Uno this weekend. So oh, now wow. everyone's playing Uno all the time and you're like, okay, yeah, they're playing games, but that's actually a great way for kids to learn. And so we're learning our colors. We're learning numbers. We're learning rules and how things go. Um, and you're learning how to be a good sport when you lose. <laughs> um, things like that's that. A that's a big thing to learn. <laughs> and virtue to not cheat because I do have a cheater mm -hmm. in my house. Mm. We have There's always one, right? I, There's always one. Exactly. Okay. So, I mean, it's it's simple stuff like that sometimes. They they start the day and they're they're doing games. They're coloring. They're doing all that stuff. And then we're, we are doing math, reading, writing, spelling, all of that stuff. Um, but at this age, like when they're really young, it's not super overwhelming. You can add extras, you can get involved in a co-op, which I really highly recommend. Mm -hmm. Um, but like some days we're learning Latin, but I'm not pushing it too much. Like if we don't have a ton of time, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna feel terrible about it just because there are, there are different seasons and in different seasons, mm -hmm. you can do different things. As long as we get the basics and we're doing a lot of reading together, I'm not worried about any of the rest. Are you well versed in Latin, or is this something that you're learning along with? This is with something them? I'm learning with my daughter. Oh, that's, yeah, that's a that's a great like uh, indication of you learning along with them, so they could probably see how you're growing as well as they are. So you're taking part in their yeah. their learning process, which is uh, really amazing to see. And is because coming back to the faith, is homeschooling usually uh, is the Catholic community as a whole more geared to homeschooling, or is it kind of like a uh, not usually, but now it seems like it's going back into that phase, especially with all the, the insanity that happened three years, two years yeah. ago. Yeah, it's interesting because we made the decision to homeschool before COVID. Um, mm -hmm. And it was really because the families that we saw that were the highest functioning uh, families where the dynamics were really good and lovely were the homeschooling families, actually. Um, mm -hmm. And that and that really surprised both of us. We had never considered homeschooling. We sort of thought we would send our kids to private Catholic school. <clears throat> I knew that I couldn't send my kids to a public school just simply from the aspect of I'd done like I said, some anti-abortion work. And I was working mm. with students on high school and college campuses and knowing what that was like for pro-life students on those on those campuses. I was like, I mean, that's just a, the tip of the iceberg. And then we get into the Gay Straight Alliance and we get into all these other things, Satanist clubs. It's like, absolutely mm. not. And then looking at the state of teachers today, it's I'm not saying that all teachers are bad, but the, the system is not a healthy system we'll say that. Um, and so, so I just, at that point, when I saw those families, my husband and I both agreed, like, we want to be like them. We want to raise holy children and we want to have a family dynamic where our kids are in integrated into our daily life. And it's not like we're just constantly chasing things or sending them off to government sanctioned daycare while I, I live a fulfilling life, so to speak, while I go and meet my potential in a career somewhere. Um, this is my primary vocation. And so that's, that's what we chose to do. Hey, that, because you mentioned the whole idea of being a, a pro-life advocate in college. What, uh, what exactly did that look like? And how difficult was that for you? And uh, I don't know when exactly you went to college. So maybe it was a little less toned down than it is now? Or was it mm. just as wacky and wild, probably? 
So I I graduated from St. Cloud State University, which is an extremely liberal state university here in Minnesota. Um, at the time, it was pretty wild. I can't even imagine, honestly, what it's like now when I see the videos. Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe some of your listeners are aware of like Kristen Hawkins from Students for Life America. But that that's who I used to work for. That was my first job. Coming out of college was working for SFLA. And so we would go to college campuses and do displays, do a lot of apologetics work. Um, I lo- Apologetics work actually helped me a lot in, in grow- my understanding of Catholicism and growing in, in all of those things, philosophy, theology, et cetera. But um, it was intense. Like I had some intense experiences coming right out of college. It was intense. In college, too, I mean, I remember, for example, in a public speaking course, I selected abortion for the semester to talk about in my public speaking course. We had to pick one controversial topic and present all these different types of speeches about it. And I remember my professor telling me honestly that she just had never had a student before that was able to do it well. She said, I'm not going to say you can't do it, but I'm just going to warn you, I've never had a student do it well. Well, after the semester ended, she asked me to tutor students in her program, even though I have no idea if she's pro-life or pro-abortion. I have no idea. Um, But yeah, I mean, it was a very interesting experience, and it really gave me a spine. (laughs) We'll Mm -hmm. say that. And then doing the pro-life work afterwards. Um, But I, I, I think it is way more heated now. Like, seriously pray for those people who are going out and doing evangelistic work or apologetics work on on college campuses it's a different animal even than it was gosh how long ago was i doing this like 10 years ago yeah i can't i can't even imagine just the the sheer vitriol it just seems like it's promulgated our at least the state's culture uh, the west anyway of just being comf- okay with sh- shouting and screaming at people for differing opinions and acting like it's it's violence for them to have a differing opinion it's it's a sad world to see and uh, i guess it just seems like that's just a, the slow degradation that does happen when you remove christ as the the foundation of a, a society and we move towards the secularism and you see that a lot with the rise of larger and larger governments and that normally that that's what happens with uh, public school integration it's a whole uh, whole cascading things of events where slowly slowly uh, more and more uh secular stuff is pushed beside uh, instead of uh, uh christ focused yeah i think there are a lot of factors obviously the removal of christ is a huge huge factor and i think a lot of what we're seeing uh sort of you know that those that's where the dominoes are falling but it's also that we live in a very uncertain time right now um And so I think it's very natural when people are concerned about survival, for example, they are very tribalistic. That's how we survive. That's a natural human tendency to find our tribe, so to speak. And it does become an us versus them mentality. And so you look economically, economically, people are not safe. (laughs) We have a lot of war going on. We have all of these other things that make people feel uncertain. Um, they're, They're wanting to survive. And then on top of that, we have never been more illiterate in the Western world. And so all of these things really feed the beast, right? Like they feed Mm -hmm. sort of this division and it has made people stupid. Like sin makes people stupid. And then you add on all this other stuff. Like sin makes us stupid. And then you add on the economics, the socio, it's it's just everything. It's just, yeah, we, we, we have a lot to pray for and a lot of reason Mm -hmm. to grow in virtue right now. Yeah. 
yeah, there there's so many opportunities. It's just sometimes it can be a little difficult. But yeah, <laughs> yeah I think maybe the reason that uh, we see this division or the tribalness because people have replaced God with their own God, whether it's the the climate or some other social justice mm-hmm. issue or themselves, which is the the most promulgated God of all mm-hmm. uh, right now in our culture, it seems like, at least in certain sects it is. And maybe that's why it's becoming more and more tribal, because we've moved away from the comfort of of God and being believing in uh, eternity versus this here and now as people moved away. Now everything seems like, Oh, I got to make sure everything's fixed right now in this life because there's nothing else afterwards, which is a very dark and bleak uh, feeling. So I could sort of understand where they're coming from with how they get so emotional and amped up about all of of what's going on Mm -hmm. well i mean most of these younger generations all they've known is one crisis after another right like i'm a 90s baby so we kind of you know we had the last vestiges of pre-internet and social media chaos right like we had a childhood that was not riddled with screens necessarily um i mean sure we watched saturday morning cartoons maybe but we were outside all day and we were enjoying that, that kind of stuff. And then even graduating from high school, excuse me, um, cell phones weren't really smartphones yet. If you wanted to use the internet, it was a lot of work and really, really, really slow. And like the pictures were super pixelated and it wasn't like what we're seeing today. Um, I, I have a lot of, uh, I don't know, sympathy and empathy for the way that these children have grown up in this very chaotic uh, world and it just continues to be that way because there's a lot of money to be made in chaos. So I think that's part of it. Uh, absolutely, and one of the things that like one of the areas that it seems like money can be made or also kind of keeping what's happening or what's going, uh, being more focused on uh, material things. It, it seems like it, this is in relation to uh, an article you've written against feminism mm. where you have this cultural push of keeping women in the workforce, going to uh, sending their kids off to daycare and having this, as you called it, which I kind of like the stay at home identity crisis, mm-hmm. because we haven't, pass down those values to men and women for that matter because like you were saying some men uh i probably struggle with this too don't know how to lead their family and and women probably don't because it wasn't passed down to them understand how they can raise a household and take care of a household mm-hmm. so what exactly would you call this the stay-at-home identity crisis so um it. yeah no i when I first left my job, I actually, so I worked for Students for Life America for about a year. Then I ran a pregnancy medical center for two years. And then I worked for LifeSite News doing development work behind the scenes. And I was traveling all over the country, um, meeting with donors and, and prospecting new donors, things like that. Uh, I loved my job. It was so much fun. I, at the time, LifeSite was a great place to work. Um, it was probably actually probably the best, one of the best employers that I've ever had in terms of benefits and the way that they treated family life and things like that. It was excellent. But when I got pregnant with my third, I knew it doesn't make sense to send my kids to daycare anymore. It's too expensive. We can't afford that. And we're spending all this extra money on food because we're 
eating out a lot more because I'm not home or I'm exhausted, all of these different things. Um, and finally, that was when we decided, okay, I'm going to stay home, even though I loved my job. And for the months that followed, I spent a lot of time reflecting on trying to understand who I was now that I no longer had a career. What most people don't understand, there are a lot of people who are maybe more traditionally minded, especially men who don't don't really understand exactly what it's like to be a woman raised, which fair enough, like you're not a woman, so you're not going to understand. But in the American culture, when you are going through school, I mean, it is obviously intended to prepare you for a career to be a quote unquote productive citizen in an economic way. And you are told often that you are going to do amazing things one day. And it, when people say that, they never mean motherhood. They never mean mm. motherhood. Have you, I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but they never mean motherhood. No. They mean you're going to do something great in, in some sort of a career, right? All of these things. So when you get married and you're learning how to be a wife for the first time and often you think about how most of us were raised. We were in school, uh, away from our parents most of the time. Our parents were working. We saw them for a couple of hours during the week. And then on the weekend, we were probably busy doing our own things, right? Mm -hmm. Unless your parents prioritized family time, you probably didn't spend a lot of time observing how your parents interacted, at least not, not like in the depths, right? Like just having a limited understanding of that. So not only that, but if our moms are out working and we're at school all day, Who's teaching us how to cook, how to clean, how to do any of the really basic stuff, how to mend clothes, how to bake bread, how to do any of this other stuff. So we're getting married and we're trying to learn all these skills. Then you add a baby and you have a career and you're learning how to be a mother for the first time and you don't know how to nurse a baby. You don't know how to, a lot of women don't even know how to change a diaper. They're still figuring out how to do their own laundry. They don't know how to treat clothes that have stains on them. And all of your clothes end up with stains on them after you have a baby, you know? It's like there are so many things. So all of a sudden these women feel very overwhelmed. And you add to that that these women have zero support. A lot of boomer moms, I'm not boomer grandmas, I guess you could say, not all of them, but a lot of them have this idea that, well, I raised my kids, I'm done, this time is about me. Historically, that is not how grandmothers approach that time in their life. They, they saw that time as their time to help their daughters raise their families. They, they wanted to be involved, a lot of multi-generational homes, all of that stuff. You also had most women at home, so everybody was raising their kids together. People weren't sending their kids off to daycare. So now you have women who are raised for a career. They were educated for a career for 12 to 16 years or more. They become mothers. They have no idea what they're doing. And then they have no support network because their moms don't want to come help out in a substantial way and their friends are all at work. Well, what is she going to do? It's so much easier to go back to work, right? Like, it's, mm -hmm. it, yes, you're juggling more in a way. But the mental load is a lot less when you have a career and you can compartmentalize your life that way. Um, and so a lot of these women, that's what they do. And is it better for their marriages? Probably not. Is it better for their children? I would argue not. Um, but that's where we are today. And, and so there are a lot of factors that go into the decision for why women are in the workforce still. A dual income home is almost necessitated by the way that we have built our economic structure in this country as well. I mean, there's so many things that keep women stuck in the workforce, even women who would love to not be working anymore. Um, it's So uh, anyway, I just, I think there has to be more nuanced conversation about this because a lot of traditional Catholics or fundamentalist people would say those women, like they're just feminists they're, because they're working. And it's like, 
there are a lot of things that we're not considering. It's not always just this choice. Um, you know, there are a lot of things that have to be considered, even though I would absolutely agree women, especially with young children, should be home with their children. Yeah, it's not a, a binary thing, especially with all the different factors in today's society with the, the economic part of it. But the one thing to mention is that I, I something I had learned, but this is sort of osmosis through my wife who listens to these types of podcasts. And she was listening to one about actually the detriments of daycare and how women think Numerous. they need to send their kids to daycare. But if you sometimes you if you analyze the, the finance of it all, you kind of just come out even you're not really ending up with that much benefit and it's true one of the negative <laughs> one of the negative impacts is that your kid in daycare at a pivotal age especially if you're setting them early on they're getting connections with so many a variety of different people that that's probably this one woman argues not good for their what is it, neuro development because they they have they're bonding with separate individuals who end up once they bond with them, they end up leaving because the mm -hmm. turnover rate could be theoretically high in those in those daycares. So it, it's something to, to consider that it's unfortunate that we have the society now where it's not some of these factors aren't considered at all. Absolutely. I, I mean, I think it often without realizing it, we're and not just talking about the abortion debate, but our children often are the ones who are sacrificed on the altar for whatever we're pursuing, right? It's not just abortion. Abortion is the most egregious example, but you're right. I mean, attachment theory is a legitimate thing. And so children are forming their earliest bonds. And uh, th this is an area that I have a lot of regret in. I mean, I, even though when I had my first, she wasn't going to daycare for a long time. My mom would watch her one day and my mother-in-law would watch her one day. And the rest of the week I had her come in with me because at the time our pregnancy center was only open two days a week. But, um, but you're right, like a baby until they're about anywhere from nine months old, maybe even a little bit older, they actually don't even know they're a separate person from the mom. Like their cognitive development, they haven't even developed an understanding that they are an individual yet. And so you're separating that baby from a mom and it is absolutely traumatizing. Like I can't, this isn't me trying to be harsh to anyone. I've done this and I, I, I really regret it, but it does, it does establish a foundation for a very anxious attachment. And somewhat, some mom, will, some moms will say, well, like, oh, my daughter was fine. That's great. I'm so glad that that was good that worked out for you guys and that you don't feel like there are any long-term impacts with that that's amazing but that's not normative babies literally do not know they are a distinct human being um and and you think about it too like i mean even though it's in the hospital i sort of feel like the medical system is really set up to create a division between moms and their babies well before they're even conceived um they treat fertility like it's a disease and and babies like they're sexually transmitted <laughs> diseases as well i mean um it's just that's how it's set up and it and it plays into how that the, their laboring care works out often and postpartum care and so on and so forth and so it really has it's a problem like women are out of touch with their feminine nature um and it, it's really unfortunate because our children are the, are the ones who suffer the most yeah it's very difficult when you just see the the path that it, it it could lead to and it's i i don't know personally i'm not sure how we write this ship so maybe i'll ask you so you can answer the difficult question <laughs> but mm. i guess as just bringing it back to the church as a whole 
is how what can we do on a local level as a church to combat this? I mean, I was kind of racking my brain. Is is there possible that we set up like co? Well, this is high in the sky, but hopeful. But like co-ops of some sorts, like for moms in the community to kind of uh, be together to then raise the kids if it's needed, or possibly classes to teach uh, individual mothers and uh, fathers for that instance of how to be. Uh, to get mentors and people that have gone through it before. So uh, I guess I'll pass off the question to you. How do you think <laughs> as the church, we, we combat this? That's yeah. There are a few things that are already in place that I think maybe women don't even know about. There are mops groups, like moms of preschoolers or something. I don't know. I don't know what the acronym stands for, but there are groups in the community that you can go and be a part of. Are you always going to find women who align with you? I'm not so sure. So I think having play dates with like women in churches, I know our church does do play dates on the weekends on Saturday mornings, but that kind of stuff is not really published in the bulletin very often. And so I don't know. There are, there are problems there too. Like I think some of these groups exist and just nobody knows about them. And so it's worth calling your parish and saying, Hey, do we have anything like this? If you don't start it. Or find someone who has the time and resources that and are they're able to start it. Often it's moms with like I would say high school aged kids or kids that have graduated that tend to be the matriarchs and, and able to run these types of ships while moms who are just like bleary eyed and still waking up thirty times every night, that's probably not the ideal candidate to start a group. Um but but she's an ideal candidate to be a part of the group. Um so that kind of thing. I do think our churches need to do a better job letting their parishioners know about the resources that they offer. So for example, a lot of parishes have a special fund to help families when they're in a bind. So let's say a mom chooses to stay home uh, and her husband is working his tail off and one month they have a hard time making their electricity bill. Well, a lot of churches have programs for you to say, hey, we're having a hard time paying our monthly bill for this. Can you help us? Um, and even the county too. I mean, in my time working at a pregnancy center, there are so many more resources available to you. So you don't, you don't have to have both parents working if that's, you, you, you're going to have to make some sacrifices probably, like serious sacrifices. Um, but you're either sacrificing the money or you're sacrificing the time with your children and you're never going to get that back. And so for us, that's kind of what it was. It's like, what are we willing to sacrifice? Um, and is it possible for us to be on one income? And it was, like you said, you know, we were spending a lot of money in daycare. We were spending a lot of money on eating out, things like that. And we realized, oh my goodness, we're not actually losing that much more money just having me at home. <laughs> um, so it's a net positive and it was better for our marriage too. It was just less juggling. Um, so yeah, I think those kinds of programs are really important and people maybe need to do a little more digging instead of like throwing their hands up and saying like, oh my goodness, I just don't know what to do. I'm overwhelmed. Reach out to the church, reach out. They, there are people there who know what's going on. They know where you can get resources and help often. So it's, it's good information. And I'm sure there's, uh, you've talked about like the difficulties because it's not all sunshine and rainbows, right? Of staying at home and raising a household, I'm sure there's a lot of uh, hardships that come with it, especially if you're doing it 
for a lot of the the women out there are doing it for the first time because you're seeing this increase in homeschooling numbers and everything, which is great. But then you run you run into the issue like you were mentioning of this, these values not being passed down to uh, these young mothers. So I, I can imagine that there's probably some difficulty, especially when you're doing this and you kind of feel alone. Is there? Uh, it sounds like when I was looking at your journey, that was sort of something that you were going through as well. Oh yeah, when I first became a stay-at-home mom, I had a friend tell me, like, there's no way you're going to make it. My best friend. <laughs> wow. She told me, she was like, you're, there's no way. Um, and uh, that stung a little bit. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, you don't exactly know what you're getting into mentally. It is, um, it can be really draining. And I think a lot of moms struggle when they lack that support system because you lose yourself in a way. You're, that isn't that the thing though about growing in holiness like you are being refined all the time and that's why motherhood is really such a unique gift is because it is sacrificial in its very nature from the day you get pregnant until forever you are always going to be sacrificing for your children and for for their well-being it's built into the thing <laughs> you're, you're sacrificing your body you're sacrificing your sleep you're sacrificing often your food because they always want what's on your plate and never what's on their <laughs> own um uh. it just never ends um but too i think a lot of us because our identity is so rooted in our career because that's exactly how we were raised to be and to think um there is sort of this deconstruction that happens when we choose to stay at home and that identity crisis of like, who am I? What am I made for? How do I lean into my vocation? Because on an intellectual level, I understand that motherhood is my crown. Like that is what God has given me and what he has called me to. And yet I feel inclined to this other thing. Why is that? And we have to really ask those hard questions looking at, well, is it because I feel more um, respected having a career? Do I feel like I have to contribute financially in order to be loved? Do I feel like I have to be, uh, to accomplish things? Do I feel like I have to be in front of people and receive accolades in order to be valued? Like there are so many reasons why women struggle with this. And it, uh, it, there are often deep wounds there, um, that they haven't explored and they're, they're trying to mother, but they themselves have not been mothered. They have to remother themselves in a way and start looking at those, those core wounds that we all have. And, and men have them too. Um, but it's a lot harder to reflect on those things when you have a lot of children that need you all the time. Um, and so mm -hmm. you have to make space for that. You have to make space for time to reflect and pray. And honestly, if you're in a situation where your husband is really your primary support. And of course, they're going to be your primary support. But I mean, like, you don't have family or friends nearby that can help take the load off from time to time. Um, your husband has to help create space for you too to step away and cultivate your gifts, your talents, um, fill up your own cup and give you space to really do more of that reflecting and taking care of yourself. Because that's where a lot of women, um, that's where they get to the place where they're like, I can't do this. And they go back to work. And I'm sure it's probably difficult for the, the wife, or the mom to come to, or come to the husband and ask for that because they don't want to seem like they're less than or they're not capable of handling it. And I'm sure that's there needs to be a, a way to broach that subject without mm -hmm. coming off that way. Because, I mean, we all, like you said, we all have our own faults. So 
I'm just curious, how would you broach that subject, say, with your husband in mm. a way that's not, uh, doesn't come combative. off as, uh, yeah. yeah, combative, that's the, that's the right mm -hmm. term. Yeah, for us, honestly, things came to a head because I, we had a, our fourth kiddo had a lot of health issues. He had oral ties and it just, that's a whole nother thing. But um, his whole nervous system was dysregulated and had some other things going on. And so he screamed all night, pretty much for like at least four hours every night for at least the first 12 months. My husband was sleeping in a guest bedroom. Actually, he's sleeping in here before I turned it into a, a podcast studio. <laughs> and I was up all night with our four, you know, our infant who he's our fourth kid. So fourth kid, I'm homeschooling the other kids. We're in the co-op. We're doing therapy for two kids twice a week, uh, like nervous system regulation and all this stuff, an integrative practitioner. And I, I have nothing like I have, I have no outlet. I have um, I don't have a lot of help and he just wasn't seeing that. So he was coming home and what he was seeing was, uh, the house is still kind of a mess and I'm, there's still a bunch of dishes that need to be done and there's laundry that needs to be done. And he's wondering why I'm not getting it done. And it's because I'm doing all these other things and I, I'm like barely surviving. I'm barely eating. Um, I had to cut a bunch of stuff out of my diet too, uh, because I was breastfeeding and all this stuff. And it was just, it was a really difficult time. I was very depressed and suicidal to be honest. And, um, I remember one day he got, he, he was loading the dishwasher and he looked at me and he made some comment about how he's tired of having to come home and all this stuff still needed to be done. And that was when it came to a head. And so, I mean, I don't want it to come to a head like that for some people, but, um, it, we were able to have a really raw conversation the next day about it. And I think he realized like he had to be more perceptive in and and thinking about me more instead of himself um mm -hmm. because that's what it wasn't happening i couldn't understand like why i felt so alone i'm like does no one see that i'm like withering away here and just trying my best and what he was seeing was he's got more work to do when he gets home and i fair enough i mean i felt bad enough but of course often there's a, a self-shaming cycle too like i'm very hard on myself i'm a perfectionist and so when i am failing to meet other people's expectations i my inner critic is very strong and so no one is going to be harder on me probably than i already am on myself um and so i think a lot of husbands for one maybe just pay attention like is my wife struggling with tasks that maybe she didn't used to struggle completing Am I checking in? Are we like getting together once a week and really spending time with each other that is meaningful where we're connecting? So my husband and I, often we have like one at home date night every week where we either just grab a drink and talk or we'll play poker. We'll, we'll bring out the poker chips and we'll talk all night and, and like have a drink and just reconnect. Um, I think it's really important that couples do stuff like that. And I think in those situations, especially if a glass of wine is involved, more of that stuff is going to just naturally come out, right? Because your, mm -hmm. your walls are sort of coming down a little bit. If you can't drink or you don't drink, um, sometimes women just need to be brave and like mm -hmm. say it not in an accusatory way, but just saying like, I'm really struggling and I really need help. That's, you know, we have, we have those conversations regularly. Like I, it's been a long time since I've had some time to myself. I think I need a break. My husband will say, okay, well, sounds like you need to schedule something. You know, that's where his boundary is. Like if it's not on the calendar, it's not happening. <laughs> and so he's saying it's the onus is on me to do that. Right. And so, but, but having that communication and realizing that 
um, yeah, when the moms need a break and, and the, I think the men more than anything, they want to be respected and they, they want their families to be grateful for the work that they're doing. And, um, so that's something that I, I practice a lot of like gratitude. We, we talk a lot about how the things that we're grateful for are my husband and his job and that we have food and a warm home, like all the things that he provides for us by the grace of God. Like those are the things that we talk about in terms of our gratitude most of the time. So my husband knows he's really appreciated. Um, so those, those are just some of the things that we've done to sort of rectify that. That's beautiful. Uh, and I think uh, maybe, uh, cause I think you also mentioned this in, in the, one of the episodes that, I caught where you were just talking about your experiences that you ended up writing a letter to him as well, yeah. writing everything out. And I thought that, and I was thinking, oh, that's probably a good way of getting your uh, ideas across without, because sometimes it comes off less combative if it's just written out and yeah. you say, hey, this is what I'm thinking. Uh, I just want to give this to you for you to read, and then we can talk about it. And that that may be another way that's feels less combative for individuals out there that aren't of the combative type or mm -hmm. aren't very, how you would say, outgoing with willing to share their their feelings. And I think having those conversations can sort of bring people together. And it's just, it's really something that maybe just don't give in to like the sin, because sometimes sin is so easy of just saying, I'm not going to talk about it anymore. I'm just going to shell up and, yep. and not not say a, not say a word i'm just gonna bear this burden uh even though you know in bitterness often yes. it's in bitterness like yes. i was i was talking to someone this weekend they, she and her husband were struggling a little bit in their marriage and and she was confiding some things to me and i said you know uh, resentment is really the silent killer of marriage and when you're tallying or keeping score you're already losing you just already are. And, mm -hmm. uh, I think, you know, in some ways my husband was keeping score, you know, he's tallying up all the things he's doing and he's seeing what I'm not doing. And for me, I'm looking at him saying, how do you not see this? And so I'm harboring some resentment because, um, I just feel alone and unseen and not, there's no emotional connection there. And so, um, I think it's really important that in, in order to have a healthy marriage, like you have to communicate and you have to work you have to talk about the hard stuff and, and like bear your soul to the other person because you are one flesh. And the beauty is that when you get through those things, your marriage is so much better on the other side. Like I, I, every time we've really struggled and worked through stuff, I just like, I cannot believe I get to be married to this amazing human for the rest of my life. He is like the light of my life. I, he has been Christ to me in my life over and over and over again. And so, um, yeah, there have been times and chapters that have been really hard, but God has blessed our marriage immensely. But a lot of that is we've had to do the hard work. We've had to have those hard conversations. That's, that's beautiful. <laughs> uh, this, this is so sweet. Um, and uh, going more into your past, for instance, it's, it sounds like this, all, all this stress and everything kind of coincides with actually your, your fifth kid. Am I correct? Like you're having all this anxiety, all this stress, oh, everything. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and, um, we don't have to go too much into it, but I watching your video, I thought this was kind of beautiful. The way you said it, you were talking about how God utilized your biggest fear to bring about the most healing mm -hmm. in your life. And it's just, and it's kind of beautiful just when you see how he leads us 
as you were mentioning, how gentle he can lead us over time. And then you look back and you're like, wow, I, I, this is this is where I'm at. And praise God for it, for it all. And mm-hmm. sometimes yeah, you exactly just got to. Yeah, because I was yeah. um, when that when when things came to a head in that part of our in that time of our marriage, I was pregnant with our fifth child and I was I had explicitly not wanted to be pregnant. I mean, that was something I was because I was not doing well. <laughs> And I don't know if I, I can't remember if I shared in that, but I had, uh, I, you know, we, before I knew I was pregnant, I had sat down with my priest and cried because I felt like such a bad Catholic because I didn't want to be pregnant and I felt like a bad wife. And, um, but I was also really struggling and my priest, he, that poor man, he puts up with me. Um, (laughs) but he, he talked to me for about an hour and a half, probably to two hours. And then two weeks later, I found out I was pregnant. And I texted him, I said, you're going to think this is hilarious, but I'm pregnant. And he called me and he said, how are you? (laughs) I said, I mean, there's nothing I can do. So, I mean, I'm okay, I guess. And he said, praise be to God. God is so good. And I remember thinking like, like, of course you would say that right now. I'm super overwhelmed (laughs) and I have no idea Mm. what I'm going to do. And so then when all of that came up with my husband, um, that was when we sat down, he said, I will, we need to do something. We, whatever you need to do to heal and to get the support that you need, let's do it. And so we hired a, a postpartum doula this time and we tried to have things in place that would give me a little bit more support than I'd had in the past because I was so concerned about having another child that just never slept and screamed all the time. Um, and, and the mental toll that that took on me. So yeah, I mean, it was like, okay, we're going to talk about what's going on and then we're going to talk about solutions and we're going to put those in place like as soon as possible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Was a, would you recommend a postpartum doula? That's something that I've uh, I've heard a few times. Is that is that helpful? Yeah, I would recommend an experienced postpartum doula. Yes. Yep. Someone who can come in and like do some light cleaning and and make m- nourishing meals for the mom while she takes a bath and you know what I mean, like someone who isn't there to interrupt the mother baby stuff, but is going to help support and make sure that the mom is taken care of. That's really what her job is, is to make sure that she's, she's getting enough food and and eating healthy, nourishing meals instead of like stuffing her face with like mini donuts or something because Mm -hmm. she's just so tired and doesn't have enough time (laughs) to eat or something. Um, so she's, she's the one checking in and making sure they're, that all the things are happening that should be happening. But it's sad because Historically, those are the roles that sisters and mothers and friends mm-hmm. would have filled in the past. And now we have to pay someone to come and do that stuff, which is really sad. Yeah, it's it's good, useful. But it's also, yeah, when you think of the grand scheme of it, that yeah. the reason that this came up is because uh, older certain women have given into this feminist mindset or they said, oh, I parented. I don't need to help anymore or i did it on my own type deal yeah uh, even though they sent them off to take care and all that so yeah. it's just it's it, it's very sad and um but it's good that it's that, that is out there and i think cultivating a a community that of like-minded individuals because that's what i'm seeing with my wife now is that she's found a community of other moms that are the same age range same uh, like age of kids and they realize that they don't didn't have the community growing up so now they're trying to be the community That's to so themselves important. 
that's so important. And then I guess stemming from this, <laughs> talking about your fifth birth, um, you actually did a home birth, which I coincided. I asked if somebody had questions and my wife, of course, because she's awesome, very supportive, asked a question, uh, what your thoughts are on birth? Cause you mentioned, uh, physiological, uh, a birth. So take it away. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this probably won't come as a surprise, but I 10 out of 10 recommend home birth. <laughs> I mean, we had our first four kids in the hospital. Um, Elijah, it's so funny. So Elijah is my, my child that, you know, was very, very difficult. But my pregnancy with him, my fourth pregnancy was my easiest pregnancy, hands down. My labor with him was my first and my only normal labor, actually, now that I think about it. Um, it was a very easy labor, but it was in the middle of COVID. Uh, and I remember going to my 38-week appointment. I've loved my OB. She's a, she's a wonderful person. Uh, but I remember telling her, you know, I'm really having a hard time giving money to an institution that I actually think is harming women, especially right now with the stupid face masks and not letting spouses come in and out of the hospital and testing everybody for something, even if they're not symptomatic. It's just, I was like, this is not helpful for moms and their children. Um, and I'm, and the medical kidnapping aspect is just a whole nother thing. But I remember thinking I'm 36 weeks. It's too late for me to find a midwife. So I, I kind of have to do it. Um, and I said, I told her, I said, this might be the last time I come in for, to have a baby. And she understood. Uh, but yeah, then we hired our midwife. And uh, when I found out that I was pregnant with Veronica and midwifery is uh, very hot right now. So like, if you get pregnant, I don't know, at least here anyway, if you do not reach out to a midwife within like the first week of finding out you're pregnant, you might not be able to secure a midwife <laughs> later mm -hmm. because everybody's kind of snatching them up right away. Everyone wants to have a home birth now, or a lot of people do. Um, and I really recommend it. I will say that this was my longest labor, but I do think that there was sort of that, um, that mind body connection of that anxiety that I had throughout my pregnancy of like, what if I have another kid like like Elijah, I, will I be able to, to survive? And, uh, I also got really sick with COVID while I was pregnant with her and I developed pneumonia. I almost had to be hospitalized. It was very serious. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, so there were, there were a lot of things and I spent the rest of my pregnancy pretty much sick. So she, my labor with her is about 40, I was close to 45 hours, probably it was very long. Um, but when I had her, it was like the most beautiful experience. I caught her myself. And then brought her up to my chest and she was just stared at me wide eyed. It was silence and bliss. And I just thought, oh my goodness, I cannot believe that we did that. You know, we just had a baby in our house. It was amazing. <laughs> and it was, and it was a water birth. I always wanted a water birth. Every time I was in the hospital and like laboring in a pool, they would tell me to get out. And it was the most awful experience ever trying to like waddle back to my bed. It was awful. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I mean, it was, it was beautiful. And then after I got cleaned up, I just went to bed with my baby and I didn't have anyone interrupting me every couple of hours or anything else. Like we, we got to rest and the bonding that happened, I would say this was the best experience I've had bonding with my babies. Um, and it was the best recovery experience that I had too. I mean, it was just, it was euphoric in a lot of ways. I don't know how else to describe it, but it was like the best thing ever. I really think that it is how God designed it to be not. And not mm -hmm. in a, ster a sterile medical setting where there are bright lights and a thousand faces looking at you. It was, it's supposed to be private and sacred. Um, and I think a lot of that is lost in a medical setting often. Yeah. Um, 
we have actually had a home birth for our first, and we we're going Way to go. You guys were on it. Yeah, that's my wife. Credit to her. She was saying, uh, wanting to do it, and I was like, the you know the classic person that didn't do any research into it. I'm like, I don't know. That doesn't sound. That, that, that <laughs> sounds, sounds a little terrifying. too crunchy to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but now she's she's gone down that uh, rabbit hole, and it was a beautiful experience. Uh, our son was born. We ended up having to go, uh, which kind of sh- sh- gave a lens of why I don't want to go uh, give a, uh, or go to a hospital for birth in the future. But we unfortunately had to because of the my something happened after the fact that the baby was born perfectly mm. healthy and everything. Uh, but it was just. They like you were saying they're coming in every second. Like you could barely get any rest. It, uh, I was I was wrecked the the next day just because it was just so stressful with all the things that they're pushing, all the tests and everything, treating both of them like a, a lab subject. It's it's so so overly frustrating uh, to say the least. But it, it's it is kind of goes to show of how God turns things that are bad into good especially now like you were saying how you because of the whole pandemic insanity with covid and all of that craziness that it led people to be more open-minded to certain issues in today's society of things that are being pushed and how certain institutions maybe not have your best interests as heart and they're just trying to get you in and get you out you know Mm-hmm. do a c-section here c-section there just to rapidly push you through and then maybe that opens some people's eyes of oh maybe i should look more into this home birthing thing and mm-hmm. it's really uh, fascinating to say the least yeah i really enjoyed home birth um even though it was long and arduous it was really because she was she wasn't in the best position but my husband was able to help me with like some stretches called spinning babies i don't know if if your listeners are aware of what spinning babies is you might i'm familiar with that yeah (laughs) so we use that to get her into a better position i was at my wits end and my Mm. husband actually felt my hips and i heard it like we both my hips popped like very loudly and shook when we were doing this like leg extension thing and um it was like then i knew it was go time and yeah i mean once that was once she was in place it was it was super it was pretty quick and um yeah i just i think again a lot of those things that you see in a medical setting in the hospital they really interrupt the natural bond that's supposed to happen in the mother baby diet and again like i said before those babies don't even know that they're a separate person so imagine being whisked away from your mom and the only voice you know the only smell you are familiar with any of these things is your mother's voice and all of a sudden you don't hear it anymore you're in a colder place with bright lights everywhere i mean it would be a lot for a baby and then a mom's Mm -hmm. you know depending on if she's had any medications or anything like that that could be interfering with the release of oxytocin in the body which is the bonding hormone um all of these things really do play a, a massive role and then waking up mom and stressing her out every couple of hours to nurse her baby I, uh, here's a news flash. Your milk comes in whether you wake up or not. Like women who have stillbirths late in pregnancy, late in pregnancy, their milk still comes in. It's actually it's a great sorrow and trial for them because it's a reminder that they don't have that baby anymore. So it's it's stuff like that that I think is is disruptive and um, leaves these moms feeling exhausted and overwhelmed when it should be a really blissful time. Not per- it might not be perfect, but it should be 
peaceful. That's like you should mm-hmm. create space for peace so that, that they can heal and bond. So that has to be a priority and it's it's not a priority in a medical setting. Yeah, and it seems like the the medical setting, the hospital setting has promulgated the fact of the pregnancy is something to be feared and giving mm-hmm. birth is something to be afraid of. 100%. It's yeah. something that was naturally or godly designed to happen and it's 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 really sad. Well, when you're afraid <laughs> Just... of how your body is supposed to work, or you don't trust your body, yeah, that there is an integration in your physiology. It will express itself in labor like it did in my experience. I mean, in my case, I think because I wasn't trusting, I was afraid, there was anxiety there. Um, I do think that that had an impact on on why she was not in the best position possible. It's like my body was physically resisting where my heart and my mind were not ready. Um, and mm-hmm. so, yeah, if we're not, if we're, if it's ingrained into us not to trust the way God made our bodies, it's going to manifest somehow. It just always does because the body keeps the score. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Well said. Uh, before we go, is there anything um, that you would recommend to mothers out there for improving, say, their prayer life or uh, getting uh, closer and more in touch with God? Is there something that you do specifically? Mm, that's a, another good question because it's easy to talk about God and never talk to him, right? Um, Mm -hmm. you know, I think for me, one of the things that I have found to be very beneficial for how I approach motherhood and not, again, I don't do this perfectly, but the days when I, I take these steps, it, it has, it makes a big difference. And then I kick myself on the days that I don't because I know better. Um, one thing is praying the joyful mysteries of the rosary in the morning, regardless of what what day you're on if you're supposed to be praying sorrowful pray them and pray, pray the sorrowful in the evening or whatever but um the joyful mysteries for me help me meditate a lot on the joys of motherhood um and i can tell that that has an impact for the rest of the day and it allows me as saint francis de sales would say to like come back and kind of sniff like a beautiful flower come back and reflect on those those lights that I had in prayer talking to our Lord and our lady. Um, I think that has been really helpful. There's another really good book called the apostolate of mother, the apostolate of Holy motherhood, I think. And it's, it has an imprimatur, but it's not like a explicit promulgated um, devotion in the church. Although I think it's growing. If you're able to get your hands on a copy of the apostolate of Holy motherhood, it's amazing. Um, and challenging too, because uh, the the type of prayer life that we should have as mothers often is lacking. Um, and it, lastly, I would say to give yourself grace. You know, like I think moms and dads too, but moms in a unique way when they're home with their kids all the time, um, we're really hard on ourselves, especially when our prayer life isn't perfect or something. And I think um, that's another area that we just have to surrender. Like my priest tells me all the time, Angela, you give yourself too much credit. If you think you're going to ruin your kids, I'm like, okay, like I need, I need to give them to God and, and that they're his to begin with. It's not just about me. Even if I have these fears that I'm like failing or doing a terrible job, he's like, you just give yourself too much credit. God's grace is more than sufficient. It's way more than you have to offer. So don't worry (laughs) about it. You know, like do your best, love the Lord with all your heart, your mind, and your soul uh, so that you can serve him in this life and the next and pass it on to your kids the best that you can. And and that's really, then you entrust the rest. So um, yeah, learn to surrender and, and be okay with that. Surrender your identity, surrender what you think you were supposed to be doing and focus on the here and now and loving 
the best that you can. And, you know, if you need to make time for yourself, don't feel guilty about that either. So that was a long answer, but those things I think keep in mind. Beautiful answer. And uh, I guess we'll end it on that. Is there uh, ways that they can uh, uh, reach out to you? I'll include all the links for your podcast and everything that you do in the description of the podcast and the, the video as well. But any final things? Sure. Yeah. I mean, like go to my YouTube channel, link in the bio or description, as well as my website, um, integratedangela.com. But you can also shoot me an email. If there's something you want to talk about, feel free to send me an email, Angela at integratedangela.com. And I'm I'm not always perfect about responding right away because I'm a mom of five kids, but I I do my best. So feel free to, to send an email to me there or find me on social media. Instagram, I'm, I'm more active on right now. So um, if you find me on Instagram, I'll probably be able to get back to you there too. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Angela, thank for so coming much. on. Thank you so much. Hey, guys. Thank you for watching this video. I hope you guys enjoyed this interview. I always enjoyed all the interviews that I do. If you are new to this channel or this podcast, please subscribe to the podcast or the YouTube channel, whichever way you're watching it. If you are on podcast platforms, listen up, listen. I would like you to subscribe, obviously, and then leave the podcast a five-star review, whether you are on Spotify or whether you are on Apple Podcasts. That helps the podcast grow. And as always, just share this podcast with your friends and family. Also, share this YouTube video if you just want to share the YouTube video as well. If you're here on YouTube, that is the best way we can grow this community as a whole. And go to adambuckingham.locals.com if you want to join the community and also support the podcast. So hopefully we can do bigger and better things and have bigger and better interviews. And I can interact with all of you all on a one-to-one -one basis. So go do that. And until next time, I hope you have a blessed week. Bye.